I just dream. I dream. I have dreams, and you know, dreams is uh, they should be pure. I, I think a lot of times, you know, when we're born into this world, we actually wind up going backwards. And it seems like the more we mature, uh, the more responsible our dreams become, and the more governors we put on ourselves and our ability to dream and to reimagine. And it's always a fight for us parents and you know, and for you guys to make sure that your dreams always stay pure. And so it's not a matter of, of, um, of pushing beyond your limitations or expectations. It's really a matter of protecting your dreams, protecting your imagination. That's really the key. And when you do that, then the world just seems limitless. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Nas, uh, yo, yo, life, they wonder, can they take me under, nah, never that, nah, yo, yo, I come from the housing, tenement buildings, unlimited killings, menaces, marked for death, better known as the projects where junkies and rockheads dwell, though I owe to it my success, with survival of the fittest every day as a child, I would think I'm a part of USA and be proud, confronted with racism, started to feel foreign, like the darker you are, the realer your problems, I reached for the stars, but I just kept slipping, on this life mission, never know what's next, ancient kings from Egypt up to Julius Caesar, had a piece of the globe, every continent, yo, this Asia, Africa, Europe, France, Japan, Pakistan, America, Afghanistan, yo, this Protestants, Jews, Blacks, Arabics, call a truce, world peace, stop acting like savages, no war, we should take time and think, the bombs and tanks makes mankind extinct, but since the beginning of time, it's been men with arms fighting, lost lives in the towers and Pentagon, why then, must it go on, we must stop the killing, tell me why we die, we all God's children, uh. come on, For the world, what, 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 come on. Completely changed how I understood Peace. the world. And I remember the very last day of class, my professor said, you know what, guys, you guys can do such a good job this semester. Why don't we celebrate by ending the last day with a movie? I was like, okay, this sounds great. <laughs> and the professor ended up putting on Do the Right Thing. <laughs> and, you know, here I am. I'm, you know, the youngest person in a small seminar of like 12 students. Everyone's watching. And, you know, without giving away the movie, you should definitely see it if you haven't seen it yet. But the last 30 minutes are just very, very intense. And I remember I was sitting there in class and I was just sobbing. I just had tears running down my face. I was scared to sniffle. I didn't want the students around me to know I was crying, but I was so affected by this movie that afterwards I went on, I remember I went on a three hour walk in the rain. I was blasting NWA and I was just thinking to myself, how can I, you know, really focus on studying medicine when certain people don't have the right to just walk down the street or have the right to be safe in their homes and their schools and their cars and grocery stores, whatever it is. And so that's really what led to me pivoting from a pre-med focus into a pre-law focus. And from there, I started studying more about our criminal justice system and um, just over and targeted policing of specifically black and brown folks. Um, and by the time I finished college, I was really focused on working with populations affected by mass incarceration and policing. So when I graduated college, I actually accepted a role where I was running an employment program for young men coming home from prison. So I was doing a lot of work with young men who were coming home from Rikers or were, you know, had served longer sentences upstate and were coming home. And essentially my job was to 
teach this curriculum to help them transition back into the workforce. You know, we worked on everything from resume writing, cover letter writing, how to properly conduct a handshake to how to talk about, you know, your experience and really how to take ownership of your narrative and reclaiming your story to understand that these are systematic issues that lead into this filtration system of our justice system and really is less to do with the individual and more to do with just systematic policies that are in place. And so that's really what kind of kept me in, you know, the civil rights field. And from there, I really wanted experience working not just on the uh, rehabilitative side of incarceration, but also on the preventative side. So after I was at that organization for about two and a half years, I transitioned to another organization where I was working with children dealing with parental incarceration. And that was really fascinating because it was thinking a lot about how we can work to break intergenerational involvement in our justice system and provide, you know, different pathways outside of this because it's very clear there are so many statistics that show us if someone um, has family that's involved in the justice system, it's a much higher likelihood of them getting involved just because of all the different facets a person would have to deal with from, you know, having a less stable household to a single income household or just the stigma that a lot of people face when you have family in the justice system. So it was really all of that work that cemented a strong passion in me for continuing to support populations that are affected by incarceration and really empowering people to reclaim their narrative and, you know, reclaim what they want for themselves. That's incredible. Damn, that's, that's dope. Yeah, it's a lot of firsthand experience. I mean, there's a lot of questions that kind of come to mind off of that. But actually, one that comes to mind to me off the jump is because, um, I mean, you talked about how Do the Right Thing had like a really big effect on you and like was part of the reason that you kind of made that pivot initially. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an amazing movie. And I think part of the reason that that movie can have that that sort of a visceral effect on people is because of how experiential the movie is, right? Like you really feel like Mm -hmm. you're experiencing these things kind of on a real emotional level. And then obviously like that leads to those real reactions. But then I would imagine that as you start to actually step into the work more and more, especially on the uh, rehabilitative side, that you're like experiencing more and more of those stories on a regular basis that just like absolutely horrify you where you're working with someone where you're like, wow, I can't believe you had to go through that. So how do you, how were you able to navigate going from that, like learning about these things in practice to actually like engaging with the real world repercussions of things, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really, really great point. Um, That was one of the things I noticed that was a shift in my experience from, you know, you're sitting in a classroom, you're talking about statistics, you're talking about these insane numbers of like 2.2 million people in the United States who are incarcerated. And then you transition into working directly with folks who don't always necessarily um, aren't always aware of just the larger implications of this. And so one of the things I really had to work on was just thickening my skin you know, just because you're going to hear things that you just never really, you just can't fathom are still happening, depending on, you know, your experience and what you kind of interacted with growing up. But really understanding that, at least for me, when I was working with these young men, like my feelings about what they had gone through had no place in the room. You know, it was really about their experience. How old were they? These were young men, 16 to 24. Gotcha. So a lot of the young men I was working with who were at Rikers were over 18, because I was working with the guys at GMDC, which is essentially for the sentenced people who are over 18 years old. So they knew when they were going to come home. And that's when I started working with them, because a lot of people don't know this, but Rikers is a city jail, right? And if you get sentenced at Rikers, the maximum sentence you can serve there is one year. If you're given a four-year stint, then maybe you'll do one year on Rikers and then three years somewhere upstate, right? But if you have not been sentenced, you can be held at Rikers indefinitely. 
And that is like, like three, four huge, years. Yeah. You can be held there just awaiting trial for years, right? That what happened, biggest that's issue. what happened to Khalif, right? That's exactly what happened to Khalif. And what's so crazy is one of the guys I worked with knew Khalif and he was locked up with Khalif. And I remember he told me he was so, he was so shaken up. He was so messed up when, um, after Khalif, you know, committed suicide because he was like, that's not the Khalif I remember. You know, he told me that, um, he, they were both in solitary confinement and they actually shared a wall. So they used to talk to each other through the air vents. And my client, you know, he was like having, he was obviously, you know, going through an incredibly traumatic time, was separated from his family, didn't know when he was going to get out of solitary, let alone like get out of Rikers. And Khalif used to talk to him and just say like, you know what, like we got to keep fighting. We got to keep pushing for this. You know, we have to just stay strong and stay focused on getting out of here. And then, you know, when the news came out about Khalif, my, my client was just absolutely shaken. He's like that. He's like, I, it's not fair that I came home. You know, it's he's like, there was no reason that I was the one that came home and he was the one that stayed there. And so wow. I think one of the most, you know, remarkable experiences I had was in talking about Khalif was that there were a lot of young men I worked with who said, I am Khalif. You know, like our stories are the same. Like his story, mm -hmm. as horrible as it was, is nothing unique to our justice system and nothing unique to like how policing operates in New York City. And so kind of just, you know, learning that, understanding that this isn't bleeding heart work, you know, and that's something that I really had to kind of hammer in because part of my job in running the employment program was also building on new employer partners. So I went to businesses all across New York City and I said, listen, I run this employment program. These young men, they really want to work. You know, they want the opportunity to be able to get a job, to be able to work and have legitimate pay, to be able to have a pathway outside of things that can potentially lead them to recidivating. And so something I said to all of these employers is this isn't bleeding heart work. You don't do this because you want to, you know, feel like a good person or you're doing this because you feel sorry for these. Like, that's not what it's about. You do this because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. You do this because you understand that there is no such thing as a first chance for a lot of folks in this country. You know, they're already born with like two strikes Thanks. on their backs just based off of where they're from, what environment they're born into. And it's totally and completely by chance. So a lot of like what I had to kind of steal myself in doing this work was understanding that this is just the right thing to do. And you're going to encounter folks who might come at it with a level of stigma or a level of ignorance. But it's really about making that information accessible and giving people a chance to ask their questions without them feeling you know, necessarily like judgmental. So a lot of employers, you know, would be worried about potential, you know, workplace violence or what happens mm -hmm. if something happens and, you know, the employee on the job, you know, has a background. How am I liable as an employer? A lot of that was kind of talking through the facts of it, which are there are very, very strong benefits to hiring people with a justice background because, you know, these employees want to work even harder. They have something to prove to themselves. They also have higher loyalty to the companies they work for, because a lot of employers will not practice fair and equitable hiring. So if someone comes home and finds a job that does treat them well and does offer them this opportunity, they're bound to stay there longer. And when employees stay with you longer, it saves in turnover costs, right? Because most of the costs companies pay are in hiring and training, and they can lose a lot of money that way, because at that point, you're just investing in your employees, right? But if you can invest in your employees and keep them with you, then that is ultimately best for the business. And there are also other things like, you know, federal tax credit and like federal work insurance for businesses as well, if you practice fair and equitable hiring. But really the idea of this was just understanding that unfortunately, this is a truth that we have to deal with. And it's ugly and it's brutal, but it's still something that's very, very worth fighting. 
and standing up against. And so that's really kind of what propelled me through my work, but also just getting to know these young men. They really, you know, are some of the best people I know and inspired me every single day to show up and be my best self because that's nothing less than what they deserved. And I really think just, you know, getting to know these young men, I built some amazing relationships and just amazing connections with folks to understand what resilience looks like and understanding that that's something that you just need to move forward and carry on in your life because other people are moving forward in their lives as well. And we never know what other people are carrying and, you know, what they've had to deal with. Wow. Well, kudos to you for the work that you're doing. That's actually, that's very powerful and is actually making an impact. Because like you said, a lot of people aren't giving people first chances, second or even third chances whatsoever. So I definitely, definitely applaud you for that. Yeah, seriously. And I feel like a big part too of of, um, what I'm getting out of with what you're saying too is like it's really cool how you've been able to kind of balance there's so many different elements that go into this right like there's like yep. the fact that it's really emotional but also the fact that there's like you know the nuances of the actual like facts of it and there's the fact that it's like really personal and it's every it's impacting people on a very like life-consuming basis but at the same time those are still part of larger trends and like larger like it's still part of a larger narrative and then like the rehabilitative side but then there's also the uh, preventative side so it's like it seems like really demanding work in the sense that it requires a lot of different or there just is so many different ways that you can move with it. But it's cool that, you know, you've been sort of as as new different opportunities have been coming up, maneuvering to an, another one as as you've been able to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also not to say that I know part of what we're going to talk about as well is my transition from this. And I think a really important thing to note is that this work is really difficult and it's difficult both internally in what you're actually doing, but it's also difficult externally in the idea of how these organizations and how these workers are supported. You know, so a lot of things that I dealt with when I was there was just things that are implicit to the nonprofit sector. And that is, you know, there's just this sort of pattern that if you do work that is supposed to help people and empower people, you're not always necessarily going to be compensated for in the same way that if you were helping a business or a corporation grow. For some reason, we've really stratified what it means to be successful and like how you can help people be successful and what that looks like. And unfortunately, when it comes to solving human issues, there just isn't as much there aren't as many resources and there isn't as much wealth being redirected into that area. And so one of the things that I saw, I worked very closely with a lot of clinical teams and I cannot stress this enough how important it is to discuss mental health and how important it is to create access to mental health that isn't stigmatized, where people really understand that one of the best ways to kind of reclaim your power is to understand yourself, understand you know, what things trigger you, understand how to build coping skills for yourself, and really just arm yourself with all these different tool sets to move through life successfully. And so that really came into play with working with alongside mental health workers, you know, LMHCs, MHCs. And that's just, you know, a really, really vital part of it all, because it's going to be hard to sustain through this if you don't have the proper outlets and if you don't have the proper support. So what we're seeing is a lot of really passionate people who aren't able to stay in this field and do the work they want to do because they're not getting the support they need, whether it's from their employer or it's just how like society is operates as a larger whole. And when that happens, we're going to see a continual rise 
and, you know, people dealing with these issues who aren't going to get the assistance that they need because these care workers aren't able to sustain themselves. They're not able to pay off their student loan debts. They're not yeah. able to, you know, make rent. They're not able to take care of their children and their families because they're working under such challenging conditions. And that's, that was just another point I want to make sure we talk about because, you know, this work could not happen without our mental health counselors. And they're just such an integral part of this. Controlling the narrative, there's only so much an individual can do. It definitely takes all those other elements of support, especially mm-hmm. if you're looking at people who are disenfranchised, people who don't have similar funds um, the same way that, I mean, we can see that even in the news today, a lot of these bigger cases that are going on, all that's really happening is that there's a legal team that's helping these individuals control their narrative, you know, getting new mm-hmm. judges, that just general perception of what actually has happened or did not happen at all. How best do you sort of talk with um, or how best did you talk with individuals about controlling their own narrative, even though you knew that there may not have been that sense of support when they left? You know, the best tactic that I think the best tactic that I had and also I just think the most honest one is to be real. You know, a lot of these people, um, a lot of the young men I worked with who had been through the justice system were very familiar with caseworkers and social workers who just said what they were supposed to do and push them into the next phase right? Who didn't really like stop to see them, to really talk to them and get to know them. And that's not always on the fault of the social worker, the caseworker, right? That could just be due to sheer volume of what they're trying to do and like keep their own head above water in their own jobs. But I think one of the biggest things that, you know, I always did was just acknowledge the fact that this is the situation, right? Nobody sugarcoating these things is not going to help anyone. And a lot of these young men that I worked with were never really given the chance to be children, they just kind of transitioned and were seen as like young adults or seen as adults from the jump. And so they weren't awarded this space or this time to explore, to make mistakes and to kind of essentially just be a child. So I think being really straightforward with them, talking about, you know, understanding the fact that what they're seeing in their community is real, you know, that targeted policing is real and racialized violence is real. All of these things are real. And I think by talking about it, understanding it, and understanding the trends that go into it can allow you to understand also what are the best ways to fight that. And the best ways to fight that are through, you know, securing employment, securing education, working on figuring out these these pieces of foundation that you can build for yourself to do your best to build another pathway out of this. But you know, one thing that I always that I always said to the young men who came in. And, you know, some of the young men I worked with, they literally would have like gotten off the bus from Rikers that morning, where there was a Rikers shuttle, they just bring you back in and they'd come straight into us first thing that morning. And we're the first place that they've been in that hasn't been an institution. And who knows how long. And the first thing that I always ask them is, what do you want me to call you? Because your name and your preference is important to me. You are not your surname. You are not a docket number. You know, you are not whatever, just, you know, your friends call you your government name, whatever it is. I want to know how you want to be called and how you want your name to like carry you through this. And I think just small things in that of just getting people to think, just think about like who they are individually, what they want individually. I focused a lot on doing a lot of writing because I think personal reflection can be really important in all of this and just creating different spaces to bring in different people to kind of evoke these things. So one of the big projects I worked on while I was at this reentry program was I actually started an arts program. Um, I remember I was working in my office and then I heard like a couple of young men outside having a cipher. And I went out and I was like, 
y'all really love, you know, y'all really love music. You guys are so passionate about it. I see you guys here. You're laughing. It's really high energy. Do you want, would you be interested in studying the arts? And they were like, yes, absolutely. And that's how I built this whole arts program. And we did everything from, you know, we actually ended up having a hip hop competition because a lot of the young men were really interested in hip hop. So I brought in an artist, Mari World, who came in and he worked individually with these guys and helped them write their own pieces that really focused on their own stories and their own narratives. And we were able to get it to be performed. Um, you know, we had a huge performance in East Harlem for these young men. And then I also brought in other forms of the arts that maybe they hadn't experienced before. So we did some painting, which was really awesome. The guys did some improv classes. Um, We did some like modern dance as well. But it was really just the idea was to create exposure to these different areas and encourage people to delve into, you know, these different ways of expressing themselves. And I think just focusing on the arts can be such a, exactly, it's such a creative outlet and such an important outlet. So that was just something I, you know, something I was focused on. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the word that kept coming to mind uh, while you were talking about that is like identity, right? Where literally from mm-hmm. the moment, you know, that they get off the bus and that you're talking to them, you're like saying, you define your identity. What do you want me to call you? All the way to like providing different options as opposed to being like, these are the probably the best options for you to consider. It's like, what are you interested in? Like, we're going to build around your identity. We're going to flipping it back on them. Support your identity. Yeah, exactly. I also think because I just mentioned identity that this is a good time to do some introductions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're a bit into the conversation and we haven't actually put uh, names to voices yet. So what's up, y'all? Welcome back to You Free. You got a Zim on the line, Eric joining as always. And who are we speaking with? I'm Harmony. I'm a recent transitionary from um, social impact focused on incarcerated populations and police brutality into software engineering, where I want to build applications that matter and are focused on solving our human systems. So how did you, I mean, since you brought up the transition, how did you kind of end up making that transition into that space? What was that like for you? So I actually kind of left this piece out, but part of my, not so much end game, so to speak, but my the direction I was moving in was to go to law school. So actually this past year, I applied for law school, got into law school, and accepted a position in law school. Thank you. Um, And after I accepted, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is an engineer. And it basically, again, (laughs) transformed how I understood I could have, you know, the most impact. And I know, you know, I mentioned earlier in the conversation, just the challenges in working in the nonprofit sector and how there are just these sort of pieces that push people out of this work. And I knew, you know, I knew that this is work that I want to do for my entire life. This is really what fuels me. It's what drives me. It's something that I wake up every morning just wanting to do. But I also was really aware that perhaps doing it through, you know, the whole legal lens might not have been the best way for me to stay in this long term. You know, with law school, to be perfectly frank, I was looking at a lot of student debt. I was looking at being more constricted in where I could work because I'd have to take a certain state bar and I'd have to practice within that. And I was also just thinking about the fact that it would still be a matter of, you know, in the the track I was looking at, which was that of like a civil rights lawyer, it might not be able to have like the massive scale impact that I would want it to have in the speed that I wanted it to be. So when I was talking to my friend, he said to me, he said, learning how to code is like being handed a chisel and a block of marble. You can literally build anything that you can imagine. Anything you want. 
anything, right? If you can think about it, you can create it. And I loved that. I loved the creative freedom. I loved the innovative problem solving. And mostly, I love the scalability of that. And so that's what really got me thinking about how I could use tech to scale out and automate resources. If you can build something and make it accessible to everyone and build pathways into it, you can make a massive change through allowing people to empower themselves. And that was really what kind of, you know, was my guiding light in making this transition to enter the situation from a different vantage point to that of like building resources, making them accessible and scaling it out to proportion. And I think also, too, because you've had the hands-on experience, you're more conscious of these biases that exist. Because I see a lot of articles and a lot of research being done on even within a realm of artificial intelligence innovation that Mm. there are these biases that are just now being built into the technologies where it's just like, well, aren't we all supposed to be somewhat socially aware of what's going on and utilizing these tools in order to make sure that we don't have these similar elements of human error? Right, absolutely, so and that's go- a great point. You're going on the right path with that. <laughs> I hope so. Um, but no, I think that's a really great point because there is this duality of we're just moving into you know a digitized world. Tech is overtaking and sh- changing and shaping how we interact, how we see the world, how just people are able to communicate and connect. Right? There is no reason why tech should only be used in the context of corporations and businesses. When we are thinking about ways to problem solve, why not bring that into areas that really need problem solving? And ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, I don't really think it's all that difficult. I think people need to do what's right and they need to redirect wealth. And I think if we put people in power who understand that you have to do what's right and not cut corners to benefit corporations, to benefit profits at the, you know, at the cost of how it's affecting people. And if we can redirect wealth because we have an insane amount of wealth and make sure that it's going into the right areas, I think that we can see monumental change. But on the flip side, you know, just even in the sphere of like working in tech, it's still a very homogenous sector because it's because also, you know, it's like very, it's sold as something very mathy, very sciencey. And we already understand the educational trends across like racial diversity and what certain students are pushed into and what certain students are pushed away from. And so I think, you know, as you see this with this burgeoning tech industry, that it looks very homogenous. And when there are people who are writing code, so for example, you know, you talk about artificial intelligence, and this is something I feel very strongly about, people are writing in their bias into these algorithms, and then people, and then ICE and our police departments are using these biased algorithms to, you know, Mm -hmm. go after people, whether it's for deportation or it's, you know, arresting folks or whatever it is, these biases are being written in. And that's why it is so important that as we build these new tools that are meant to be scaled and automated, that they're being created by diverse people who understand the different nuances of what is required to make sure that this information is accurate. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I feel like that's been a big frustration for me too, is seeing how a lot of times it feels like we have, we have the resources that we need. They're just not in the right places. We have, we have all, the, all tools. the tools, but, yeah. but you know, we don't sit, we can't sit down and have a conversation about how to best use the tools. So then the tools just ended up being used sometimes consciously, sometimes like unconsciously in ways that ultimately only perpetuate the man-made problems that we're all trying to fix right now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like what, what I love about your introduction to tech is that it was in such a 
uh, a way that framed it around creative freedom work because there is such a possibility there, you know, in the right hands and with the right conversations happening to not only be proactive, but to really like, you know, fundamentally like rethink what solutions to some of these, you know, old problems can be because now we have like new ways of being able to, to your point, scale things out and make an impact directly. And we have so much access to just so many people and just schools of thought at this point where it's just like all the dots are there. We just have to make sure the technology could just connect it as honestly as possible. Straight up. Exactly. I feel like a lot of it too comes back to the the conversation aspect too, where I mean, when you were doing your rehabilitative work, like a lot of that came down to like opening it up and having an an direct and like real authentic conversation with other people. But like a lot of times that isn't actually happening in the spaces that are making the decisions that lead to those interactions down the line in the first place, you know, that was kind of abstract Mm -hmm. worded, but I, I think you get what I mean. No, I got you. I think it's important to demand accountability, right? So like, you know, when you were just talking and brought up this example I had, um, or this, this thing I was remembering where I remember there was a Black Lives Matter protest um, that was being held in New York. And I remember I was talking to the young men I was working with about it, you know, talking about the protest. And a lot of them were talking about how, you know, they wanted to go and they wanted, you know, they wanted to go and participate. They wanted to protest. But one thing that my director like pulled me aside and said to me, like, you have to be aware, Harmony, like there are going to be a lot of police there. And a good number of the young men we work with have open cases or they have, you know, like they're just it would not necessarily be super safe for them to be at a protest like this. Like what happens if the police just go off on something or if they start arresting folks or, you know, whatever it may be. I think there are certain places in which people can leverage their privilege or they can leverage their responsibility and show up. And so in that particular case, maybe it wasn't like, you know, maybe it doesn't fall on the backs of the people who are dealing with this day in and day out to go in and on top of that have to protest, have to put themselves in another vulnerable position by putting themselves close to the NYPD, by putting themselves in, you know, the definition of protester, which allows the NYPD to arrest them, to put them in handcuffs, to take them in and all that stuff. Right. But it could fall on other people who understand you know, what is going on, that they have to step up and do this. And so a lot of that, you know, when I was working at this ranch organization was talking to businesses about their responsibility to society and their responsibility to our country and to these young people. And like, this is how you can stand up and fight. Right. And I really strongly believe that you can disrupt from any angle, no matter where you are, what you do. If you make a decision to be conscientious and thoughtful in how you carry yourself and how you you know, look at the world around you and you speak up when you see other things happening. I think that's a great way in which we can continue to make these changes. But it's not always going to be on, you know, the oppressed, so to speak, to teach other people and to tell them, hey, you should care and you should stand here with us. That's on us to make those calls, to bring in other allies, to fight for that. Because other people are dealing with a lot of other things right now. They can't be out here convincing folks, you know, hey, this is the right thing to do. This is where you should be. You should stand with us. Ça 